Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. (laughs) The second annual NDC Minnesota is coming up May 6th through 9th. Go to ndcminnesota.com today to register. And tell them Carl and Richard sent you. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. Still stuck in London with no particular signs of being able to go home anytime soon. We can't even get paroled from this place. What is this conference? Ben-Hur? I know. Take these shackles (laughs) off of my feet, sir. (laughs) Good day, sir. Uh, Rob Connery is here, which means we're going to be off the chain pretty soon. We just go directly to Unruly. Right. Do not pass go. But before we bring Rob in, we have a few things to take care of, don't we? We always do. Starting with Better Know a Framework. Awesome. All right, man. What do you got? I know Rob's going to dig this. You know about MIDI, Rob. Mm. MIDI. Musical instrument interface. Been around for a million billion years. The first MIDI specification was published in 1983. Wow. And they finally got around to making 2.0. Wow. 2.0. 2.0. Yeah. They've gotten to two. I know. <laughs> <laughs> there were lots of increments. Like they've done a bunch of stuff, but they finally go, we're going to say two. For those who don't know what this is, it's kind of like USB for musical instruments, mm-hmm. right? USB is a serial protocol, it's high speed, and so is MIDI. It uses a different jack, different, but you can now do MIDI over USB. It's all okay. But while USB was busy iterating and iterating and iterating and making new versions and well, USB. And, and dramatically faster <clears throat> and power source and all those other crazy things that USB does. These right. Days. MIDI has not. <laughs> and uh, so now there's some, there, there are the three Ps of the MIDI 2.0 environment. And it, it's basically a new way to extend the protocol while keeping backward compatibility called hmm. MIDI CI or MIDI Capability Inquiry. And so one thing it can do is profile configuration, which are a profile is a set of rules for how a MIDI device sends a response to specific MIDI messages to achieve a specific purpose or app application. And you can also do property exchange, which is absolutely kills me why we never, you know, we had to wait till 2019 to actually get information about the devices via MIDI. That would have been good. So these messages can get and set device properties, but like like product name, configuration settings, controller names, controller values, patch names, and all that stuff was doable, but it was done, and I know this because I used to program this stuff, it was doable, but it was done with system-exclusive messages, which were unique to each individual instrument. And I remember working on a universal librarian when I worked at Voyetra in the early, late 80s, early 90s, I think it was late 80s, that you actually had to take the spec and fill out structures in C to match the particular, oh, wow. yeah, to match the particular instrument and then test it and make sure. Now it's just part of the spec. Wow. So universal librarians taking patches, copying and moving them around is no longer. Um, I just still feel like they're still reinventing specific. USB here. Like I, if I was a vendor making musical equipment, it'd be really tough for me to justify doing anything other than like USB-C. Well, USB is used now instead of MIDI cables, mostly, Mm -hmm. because it is a serial port interface, right? But 
the MIDI protocol still is very specific to instruments and right. patches and names and and messages that have to do with the instruments. But uh, I don't see that as a strength. All that stuff could be transported over USB. It is. Right. It is. And so it's just, so you're saying it's no longer really the hardware, it's just a protocol. Yeah, this is just a protocol. Mm. Yeah, it doesn't matter whether you use a MIDI cable or a USB cable. No. I mean, it, the protocol is the protocol. And it's just a way of describing musical stuff carried over right. USB. And now they're taking stuff that was specific to manufacturers and had to be implemented on a manufacturer-by-manufacturer, manufacturer, or actually even product-by-product product basis, moving that into the spec. So it just makes... All that easier. No, none of this is any relevance to anyone who's listening to the show, unless you're maybe, in music. Unless maybe people who uh, have MIDI sequencers, synthesizers, devices. Nowadays, it's pretty much all done on a PC or a Mac. Right. Everything, all the music that I create, the only thing I use is a controller keyboard. And that's just for input. Right. Like I don't have any boxes that make sound anymore. No. It's all done on the computer. Yes, just simpler. Right. The only, my only problem with computers, computers in that equation is the same problem we have with computers in recording in general. It's like mm. they're not reliable enough. Yeah. There's a reason we record on an H6. Yeah. But right. there is something nice to having, you know, a hundred virtual instruments mm -hmm. versus having a, a garage full of instruments and sure. cables and switchers and but all that stuff. But there's something really horrible about being on stage and getting a Windows 10 update. Well, not that that would ever happen. Yeah, I mean, performance is a different thing, right? Yeah, we and, and great point that recording yeah. music using with and working with MIDI and using MIDI on stage, right? Very different. Unless things. you're Thomas Dolby, you know, you don't have a well, bazillion synthesizers on stage anymore. Not even Thomas Dolby has that anymore. He, I saw him in concert not that long ago. Yeah, and he's over fifty. Yeah, and uh, you know, and he's basically doing acoustic sets now. It's kind of yeah. laid back. It's very cool. Yeah, but yeah, not even he, not even Thomas Dolby is Thomas Dolby anymore. You could chime in. I know you've been <laughs> quiet, but you could chime in on that stuff, Rob. I know you do some electronic music. Well, I do. Well, I was thinking of two things when you were talking about this, that that I had to understand MIDI a little bit when mm -hmm. I started podcasting and doing other things. But it also, when you were talking about Thomas Dolby, it made me think of Edge from U2. Right. With his, I don't know if you ever saw, there's a great movie called It Could Get Loud. <laughs> <laughs> but it was Edge and it was Jack White and uh, uh, Jimmy Page. Right. Wow. Three of them talking about guitars. Whoa, wow. And so they all sat together in the sound stage. And so, of course, you know, Jack White and Jimmy Page show up with their guitars. And they have right. two or three EPs, right? Jack White, I think, had a board with a, a wire on it or something. Right, yeah. But then here comes Edge with his, his assistant wheeling in this huge board with all right. his Pedal electronics. Board. Yeah. So I can only imagine what goes into that. I don't know if that would be MIDI. No, it's not MIDI. That's yeah. all analog. Uh, That's the old school. But old still, school it's, it's, it's that guitar pedals. The idea of the electronics helping the instrument. Yeah, the shaping the sound. Yeah. Yeah. I have pedals. Um, you know, I don't I don't go crazy with pedals. I like the old school boss yeah. pedals that yeah. I've been. But you also have a few years. specific guitars for specific sounds that you use. Only two, really. Yeah. I have the Les Paul for the ripping killer boogie shredded sound yeah. and, and just crunchy sound and i have a strat for that open yeah. coil yeah. boinky boinky sound yeah boinky boinky yeah, yeah it's a boinky sound I don't <laughs> I, you know it's funny i went to the music store and i bought a gretch you know the hollow body yeah and i can't remember what model it is but i remember coming home plugging it into this amplifier just like <sighs> yeah. the sound right. you know and it's delicious funny. well because to people that don't play guitars like they what's the difference between a fender or whatever yeah, Les yeah. paul and 
Oh, the Gretsch, the hollow body sound. The effect. hollow body is a thing because you feel yeah. it as much as you hear it. When right? it has a resonance plate on it, like it's a yeah. very specific. And the big the BB King. It's kinda. deep. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. the Gretsch one is even deeper than like the 335 that BB King plays, mm -hmm. yeah. which has some of that. But this is closer to an acoustic. I mean, wow. it does have F holes. It's not open, but you feel it when yeah. you play it. And then you hit that the Bigsby bar. You know? Yeah. Exactly. That's the song I learned to play. Of course, yeah, that's the song I learned to play. I got that guitar. All right. All right. We're geeking out music today. Geeking out on music, yeah. but just for now. Anyway, who's talking to us, my brother? I'm, I, as soon as I saw, I saw that mini thing a while ago, and I thought, wow, Carl and I are gonna have to talk about this. Yeah. It's just amazing. After all these years, right. they're actually moving that thing forward. I know now that it's practically irrelevant. Yeah, they said, now you come up with an update. <laughs> really? <laughs> okay, time for two. Yeah, where were you t ten years ago? Yeah, uh, grabbed a Comatoff show fifteen sixteen, which we did in this very room a year ago with oh, Mr. Yeah. Connery, mm -hmm. talking about a curious moon, which mm -hmm. I had reviewed, read in detail, yeah. fundamentally disagreed with, <laughs> and we argued mightily. Although it was, I, it was a moment of our friendship when yes. you, you looked me eye and you're like, "Are yeah. you going to be okay? Well, if know, I not fix this?" Well, then, yeah. I listen to this podcast a lot, and I thought, you know, Richard's typically right about a lot of things, and mm. here he's so glaringly wrong. <laughs> How can that be? Yeah, I know. Now, Richard no, Campbell? I just really have a problem with endorsing genocide. Yeah, like we, that's where my line is. I'm sorry. Are we going to do this again? No, uh, really not. Go back and listen to the show. But hey, it's, Sparky, yeah. come here. Yeah. It's fiction. Yeah. <laughs> so upset. See, you remember. I, I, I can recall many great works of fiction that include genocide. Yeah. <laughs> Let me count them. Nice. Yeah. Well, anyway. I was absolutely delighted by the book in the nice. sense that it was just what a fun way to explore yeah. post Yeah, well, fun and genocide don't typically go together in the same description. <laughs> well, of a but book. I'll give you this. But there's going to be people out there wondering, what the heck are we talking about in this yeah. about Postgres? Yeah, so no, genocide, yeah. fun, Postgres. Yeah, so that's the back jacket photo. The most fun I've ever had exploring genocide yeah, ever. Yeah. Just saying. Uh, so this is a comment from that show, 1516, and I absolutely recommend it to your listening. It was wonderful. It's only, only a year ago. And this comment comes from Jim McCafferty, who said, there's an author called Rob Connery who sells his books through Amazon. One of his novels is about a college dropout who takes up fishing in the Florida Keys. It became clear by the middle of chapter two that this chap was not going to consider Postgres as a potential solution to his problems. Perhaps things should have turned out differently. Valuable lesson learned today. Always check the show notes before buying a book. <laughs> I know this Rob Connery. He's from a different branch of my family, and we've communicated. Is that this. actually true? Yeah. Oh my we goodness. have emailed each other. He writes a column for the Cape Cod Times about fishing. Wow. And so we've emailed and like, hey Rob. He's like, hey Rob. This is weird. <laughs> so we're fighting for Google space. There well, is another Carl Franklin and his son, Marcus Carl Franklin. Yes. He, the son is Devil's a musician. Blue dress. Yeah, and the and the father's a famous actor uh, turned director. director. Yeah, that he, he was first an actor in the seventies, yeah. and then he turned director. And Devil in a Blue Dress was one of his movies, and mm -hmm. Out of Time was another one. He likes Denzel, you yeah. know. So I'm waiting for the day that I actually meet him face to face, and we compare Google notes. You know, Google love notes. <laughs> hey, will you get out of my Google list? <laughs> <laughs> Anyway. Oh, well. Uh, and Jim, thanks so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code by is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code by, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via Facebook. We also post every show there. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, you'll get a copy of Music to Code by. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. 2.0. <laughs>
I think they're past 2.0 on tweets now. Goodness knows. Yeah. All right. What are we talking about today? Because we're not talking about Curious Moon, although, again, with nothing but love. But uh, well, no, you've you, written books since. Yeah, I just released the second volume uh, that I co-wrote of The Imposter's Handbook. Oh, interesting. With Mr. Hanselman, Scott Hanselman. Uh, he, he decided yeah, to another one of the original imposters. Yes, he actually mm. got mad at me and said, The Imposter's my thing. What have you done? <laughs> <laughs> that did not happen. Sorry, Scott. No, see, now he's really going to be mad. You Imposter know, um, TM. He he was a big uh, he was a big reason I wrote the first book. Mm. Um, he gave me the idea, and uh, the second time around, I was bouncing some ideas off of him, and he said, "Can I help?" And I said, "Of course, you know, of course." So we decided to do it together. Yeah, that's wow. cool. It's been a blast. That's cool. So I just released it. Uh, went final. Uh, I would say a month and a half ago. New podcast, This Imposter's Life. This, yeah, that would be a good one. That would be a good one. You haven't done a developer's life in quite a while. Yeah, we've been talking about it, but, but it's funny. We, we talk about the things that we want to do. And I mm. remember, one, how long it took the two of us to get together. Because yeah. he's a super busy person. Right? Yeah, yeah, crazy busy. And, and then we'd get together and we'd have to spend four hours, mm. you know, going over back and forth. And then we'd have to do the re recording and blah, yeah. blah, blah. It just took forever. And then I'd have to sit down and edit. So it was just, just we just can't find the time. Right, right. Yeah, but yeah good editing fun. like that is, is painstaking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's an art you've, form. Got a, you've got a the problem is you committed to a style. Yeah, no. And mm. that style is not inexpensive no, from an editing perspective. I did a podcast in that style on the keto side called the Obesity Code Podcast, obesitycodepodcast.com. And we did 23. I say we, I did, I edited 23 or so episodes of that. And it was taking apart interviews, turning them into half interview, half narration, having experts chime in, having music beds that come up and go down. It was the same, the same storytelling Mm -hmm. style. And it was challenging. It took 12 hours an episode sometimes. It was, it was different than a technical podcast Mm. Yeah, because with a technical podcast, you can talk about logical things and people's motivations and Mm. blah, blah, blah. But with a personal one, it took me, each interview we did, it took me a good hour and a half to, one, get the person comfortable, two, understand what they're trying to say, yeah. and then three, get them to say it yeah. right. in a way that was honest. And then once I did that and I had to go back and edit it, mm. the responsibility of editing someone's interview who's telling you a personal thing, editing it correctly, because even the slightest pause or space can yeah. add exponential effect to what someone's trying to say. That's right. And you can easily overstate or understate or not say the right thing. And yeah, that was huge in terms yeah. of like psychic weight trying sure. to do these shows. Well, this is just a punishment for your empathy here. You know, if you were much <laughs> yeah, different know, person, right? this would be way easier. I know. See, I should, uh, right. <laughs> I should definitely Stop just caring so much. Just be more evil. Way simpler. Yeah, be more evil like Richard Campbell. Yeah. <laughs> should, yes. Well, you know, the... The only time in, in Don and Rocks, we really did a, one of those more complicated edits. It was that uh, genetically modified foods geek out where we had, I, I'd interviewed uh, Monsanto scientists for hours. Right. And so we really cut it down to, I think we went with 12 key points mm-hmm. for an hour long podcast mm-hmm. and, and sliced yeah. those in. And also Mr. Franklin Goes to Washington was sort of like. Yeah, it's similar, similar yeah. format. Yeah. yeah. Story so, arc. Exception styles, but it was you know yeah. you didn't want that whole interview. You wanted those moments right. where they really talk about, right. especially because they're quite technical explanations right? and they're story based, right? Yeah, there's, they a, there's an arc to it. Yeah, yeah. I didn't yeah. try to get to that understanding way these positions. All right, so why imposter syndrome? Why is that so important to you? 
Uh, for a lot of reasons. I mean, I've been working in the industry now for 25 years, self-taught, former geologist, the whole thing. But, you know, coming to conferences, I remember the first time I took the stage just thinking, oh my God, I've really pulled one over on these people. And I think, you know, talking to the other speakers here, I think everyone feels sort of the same way. Mm -hmm. And so, okay, getting aside from that, it's like, okay, so we all feel this degree of self-loathing, whatever. I'd like to get beyond that, right. you know, I'd like to, so I just thought knowledge, knowledge, you know, and it actually turns out that one of the treatments that they give people who have serious, because it's a serious disorder that people have this, you know, one of the treatments they give you is writing, where you actually have to write your accomplishments down. Yeah, know? that's and, right. And the process of writing cements it in a different part of your brain, evidently. So that's what I decided to do. And I started writing this stuff. And I kind of, the book was half stuff I didn't know and half stuff I knew, but mm. wasn't sure I knew well enough. Yeah. So that was the first one. And the second one came about because I started interviewing uh, just because I wanted to. I was actually making a video about how to interview. Right. And I thought, well, I'm going to put myself through the Google, the Google interview loop, which is supposed to be the hardest. Mm. And, and I'm going to prepare myself. And that was intense. Did you have someone from Google interview you? Um, yeah, I went through the interview loop for an engineering position, which is hysterical. So you actually applied yeah. to work at Google yeah. to collect the experience. Well, which also, question if is, I got the job. What if they offered you the job? Oh, yeah. I would have taken it. <laughs> okay. Of course. Did, yeah. you not, did they not offer you the job? No, no. So I got, the interesting thing was it was an engineering position. Mm -hmm. I went through four interviews and mm -hmm. they said, well, there was one part, which I'll share with you if you want to know, but there Absolutely. was one part. They, uh, I was on a white, this is going to, this is going to make everybody upset out there who hates interview questions, but we can get to that later. Mm -hmm. They, they, they asked me to write this algorithm on a whiteboard and I did a good job. I think it was in C sharp. C right. sharp on a whiteboard is not an easy thing, nope. yeah. but it wasn't that it was, it was doing some type of depth first search. And so I, I did it. I had studied it. I had it in my head and I did it. And then the person whipped out their camera, their phone, and they took a picture of the whiteboard. Right. And they said, thank you. You know? And I said, all right, you know, and in my mind, I'm like, are they going to go back? And and they did. They took it back. They wrote it in the way I wrote it, and they wanted to see if it would compile and run. Right. And it didn't. Surprise. Wow. Yeah. But, but so to me, like, you could be negative about that and say, Arr! but like, to me, it was like, wow, those are the people that Google's wanting, the people that can write it on a board, even though we don't write code with a pen. No. Mm. But they want to know. Who doesn't write C Sharp without IntelliSense? Mm. I know it's ridiculous, mm -hmm. but at the same time, I was like, whoa, if everybody at Google can get do this, yeah, I don't belong here. Yeah. You know? I, I don't know. The, 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 the real question is, why are you cluttering your mind with that crap? We have tools for that. I know. That's the thing. And well, I also am kind of offended yeah. that it's like the next thing you do is actually, here's a laptop. Put that code in. Let's see how it goes. Yeah. Like, or, why take you out of that loop? Maybe they wanted you to design something that turned a phone, a, a picture from a phone, and actually compiled it. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, it could be. <laughs> that was fine. <laughs> well, I was actually talking to an attendee here uh, recently. Uh, just it was earlier. It was yesterday or today. And anyway, um, he had read the book and said thank you because you know he had been uh, I think working in some enterprise company for a really long time and wanted to change jobs and just mm. realized wow he's been out of the loop. And he said, reading the book helped him in two ways. One, it helped him brush up so he could interview. But two, having those concepts down helped him then learn the new stuff that's out there. Right. Yeah. And a lot easier. And I thought, that's really fascinating. Um, but as to, as to why these companies do this, I actually have found that I understand why. Mm. Because I, in my talk that I gave here, I actually went through five variations of Fibonacci. Right. Mm -hmm. 
each one had different reasons for being. Mm -hmm. And to be able to speak to like time complexity versus space complexity and to understand algorithms at that level, I get it. They just want to know, can you think to that level? Can you solve weird problems in a hacky way? Mm -hmm. Right. So I guess I understand it. It doesn't bother me so much. But yeah, when you're sitting there and like solve this tic-tac-toe algorithm for us and like, yeah, it sounds so stupid because you're at one of the top tech companies in the world. Yeah. Solve tic-tac-toe. Like that doesn't go together. And that well, can see why people get upset. It does though, because they want to see how you approach problem solving. Yeah. Right. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah I don't know. So I have, a, I have a feeling the comments in this show are going to be all about <laughs> how awful Google is. Yeah, just well, how awful interview questions are in general. Yeah. yeah. I think, I do think the whole interviewing thing is a very challenging aspect. Yeah, right. And, and what's, what I find fascinating is having worked in a lot, a lot of different aspects of this industry. It's like best interviewers I've ever seen in my life, salespeople. Mm-hmm. And for exactly one reason, they interview constantly. No, that's, they, yeah, even that's when right. they're working for you, they're they fishing for info. They they interview every month, not like they're out the door, but because they feel it's that important. Right? Like, why wouldn't you be good at this? Yeah, it's like the, yeah. always be closing, always be interviewing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Always be closing is also the sales guys thing. It's right. like yeah. the to be a good salesperson is to be able to sell yourself, and that's, that's part of this equation. And so yeah. they're naturally good at it. And, it. and it's not like I'm a fan of salespeople. Yeah. Right. But I've had. Owned companies that made products that needed to be sold, and those guys are really good at it. Mm-hmm. First prize is this Rolex watch. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it takes a different person. Like the the folks that are good mm-hmm. at lead generation mm-hmm. are people who can make a hundred phone calls in a day yeah. and get ninety nine no's yeah. and yeah. just celebrate the one yes. Yeah. And I'd blow my brains out. Yeah. There's no mm-hmm. way. Yeah. Do you think I don't value those? There's three guys doing that all day yeah. working for Strange Loop. I was in awe. Yeah. Like, yeah. value the differences. And they had a good day, mm-hmm. right? Like, they yeah. support each other and they're back slapping and doing that thing. Like, mm-hmm. right. But the, the psychic weight of that would just for us, yeah. for them, no, yeah, yeah. right? Like, different creature. Yeah. But I also took away from this just like understanding you can be good. You could choose to be good at this. Mm-hmm. You can put energy into doing it routinely that's right but i also think that as the employer too we're really bad at tech interviewing yeah I would like i don't know that i'm keen on what you just described at no, Google and saying does this actually generate you the engineers you want because you know there's a reason kind of google's in trouble these days mm. they're having cultural problems and they're being reflected in their products and their behaviors yeah. and is this an element of that mm. yeah I, you know i I, I don't know. I mean, no one has a question. It's it's a difficult thing. But I will say, and putting together uh, this interview video set that I was doing at the time, I worked with John Skeet, mm-hmm. you know, because I was like, all right, I'm going to put John Skeet to the Google, test. Here Google employee. Google employee. Mm-hmm. And I, and of course, you know, I asked him a few and he knew them right off the top of his head, mm-hmm. which he later admitted to me. He's like, I make it a point to interview people routinely. So I know these problems. Right. Yeah. So I went about finding one that I knew he wouldn't see. <laughs> right. And it's there's a problem, I can't remember the name of it, but it's, it's like you have two chances to drop an egg and you're climbing a building and what's the least number of stairs? It's something like that. What's the highest you can go? And it's a really, really tough math problem. Mm. It's not something that you would know off the top of your head and I can't remember. You know, I stumped him cold. Right. And it just made me feel good that he didn't right. know the answer and it was fun to see him, to see his reaction, because developers will get frustrated when they sure. don't know the algorithm. Sure, but yeah. John stopped himself and he went back and he, he asked for more time. And then we got to the hour point and I said, Well, you know, John, the interview's about up. How do you feel about, you know? And he was, his reaction was just wonderful. He's like, Well, I feel like I could have done better, but this problem got the best of me. Mm-hmm. 
And he just was straight out with it. And then later on, I showed him the answer. And, mm. you know, he was like, oh, this is ridiculous. <laughs> 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 yeah. I'm just going to do my best John Skeet impression. But he begged me never to do it. Right. <laughs> so not that good an impression. Yeah, no, no. Uh, you know, um, <laughs> I, I've taught, I've dealt with kids that are trying to learn, you know, how to program JavaScript yeah. and never seen JavaScript or anything or any yeah. kind of programming, anything for the first time. And inevitably, um, they feel it makes them feel stupid. Yeah, it does. Because they, you know, they realize all of the things they don't know, and they don't even know what they don't know. But yeah. they all they see is a world of everybody else is smarter than me. Yeah. And you know, the I know it doesn't help that much, but yeah. one of the things that I always told them was, you know, as a developer, you need to get used to feeling stupid. Yeah. Because well, if you don't. Yeah. You're not learning anything and you have to turn it around and say, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, well, now I do. Yeah. Now I can continue adding to my knowledge. There was a perverse reason why I chose this problem is because it was one of the hardest ones that I saw in the interview question set. And I thought, right. I want to see John struggle, which is, I really mean it. It's perverse. But as an employer, it, I can't imagine, okay, this is really bad to say, uh, if, I, if I end up hiring people at Microsoft, as an employer, to watch someone struggle and see their reaction. Mm. And John's reaction was, uh, as you could imagine, like genteel, polite, kind. Yeah. He was 100% in the problem, wanted to try and solve it. Mm. And then at the very end, just said, I've got to throw in the towel. And it yeah. admitted the honesty of like, I can't solve this. Right, right. And as an employer... I could see why I would ask that question because you want to see how someone will buckle. Yeah. Because people could slam the table, which a lot of folks here have told me. They've walked mm. out of interviews facing problems like this. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, well, you just failed your test. Because that test could be, how will you handle humiliation? Sure. Yeah. Or that, it, only, do you see this humiliation? Or, right. You know, exactly. it, it, my thought was character is what shows in times of adversity. Exactly. You saw mm. John Skeet's character that, yeah, that, yeah. at that time. And we, you know, it, I, I'm, it's funny that he didn't think to check Stack Overflow. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was forbidden to do that. Actually, yeah. I let him do it. I let him do I, I was going to make him do it on a whiteboard uh, and put a video camera up. But he's like, uh, no. Yeah. And so I yeah. said, You're not, we're not going to make this a do you do. Notepad. I made him do it in Notepad. Yeah. Wow. But it's also interesting that, you know, the, to put those kinds of constraints on it. I do think it's very, what am I looking for in a developer? It knows when they're over their head, mm -hmm. you know, and and I do think you want to know the character of people's right when they fail because yeah. it's inevitable. Yeah. And if we have a constructive culture that allows for failure and carries on, gets yeah. better, yeah. then it, you have to see what that looks like. Well, I, I remember being coached on this, and, and it's like you want to see the reality of somebody. Watch them drive in bad traffic, mm -hmm. and watch them deal with. A, a, a mediocre waitress <laughs> or server yeah. with a problem with a meal. You, you know, know who that's I'm thinking character. of. Yeah. You know who I'm thinking of. Yeah, no, it's like, why so angry? Because <laughs> there's some people who drive angry. Yeah. Very, very angry. Oh, my God. A line from the Big Lebowski popped in my head, like, calmer than you are. Yeah. <laughs> calmer than you are. <laughs> calmer than you are. Hey, if you guys can just hold that thought for a moment while we pause for this very important message. Support for this episode of .NET Rocks is brought to you by MongoDB. You know, as a software engineer, chances are you've crossed paths with MongoDB at some point, whether you're building an app for millions of users or just figuring out a side hustle. As the most popular non-relational database, MongoDB is intuitive and incredibly easy for development teams to use. Now, with MongoDB Atlas, you can take advantage of MongoDB's flexible document data model as a fully automated cloud service on Azure. 
MongoDB Atlas handles all the costly database operations and admin tasks that you'd rather not spend time on, like security, high availability, data recovery, monitoring, and elastic scaling. Plus, get access to the latest database features as soon as new versions are made generally available. Try MongoDB Atlas today. Visit mongodb.com rocks to learn more. Support is also provided by Max2. Hey, I don't know about you, but I feel like managing the apps on my desktop sometimes is kind of a pain. And Max2 is a small program that helps you organize your windows effectively by placing your windows pixel perfectly wherever you want them. Max2 is extra useful if you have one or more of those fancy ultra-wide monitors like Richard has. So you want to make your day a bit easier? Try a free, fully functional trial version or just watch some short videos to see how it works. Visit their website at max2.net. That's M-A-X-T-O dot net. And we're back. It's .net Rocks. I'm Carl Franklin. That's Richard Campbell. And that's Rob Connery. And we're talking imposter syndrome. And mm, we were talking music. We'll, we'll talk about a, a plethora of things. But one of the things that I'd like to know, and I'll, maybe I'll ask you guys both, is that let's say you're on the clock and you're billing hours and you come up against an issue that you had no idea, you didn't expect it. You have no idea what's causing it. You have to sort of dive into it and debug it. How long do you churn on that? And, and by churn, I don't mean just sit there and look at it. I mean, try to solve the problem before you ask for help. One hour, two hours, 30 minutes. Yeah, I'm in the minutes range. In the minutes range. Well, because I'm used to, I have almost perfect recall. Like generally yeah. speaking, if I don't know the answer in two minutes, an hour later is probably not going to matter. Yeah. But also I have a great network. And the, the probability that I don't know someone that's encountered this problem right. before is virtually zero. But let's say you're on a team, they're also on the clock, and you don't want to be pinging them all the time, but yet they're, they've been very generous with their time. What, how about you, Rob? I actually had this happen just the other day. I was working with Azure, and I was trying to solve something. Uh, I pushed a website up, and I'm new to Azure, right? and I pushed something up, and I could not get it to load. I, couldn't, uh, I had no idea how to diagnose, and... And you literally just like directly yeah. into the wall. Yeah, like that. and I gave it 20 minutes. I remember 20 minutes because I was looking at the clock and I, I checked myself, 20 minutes. You pomodored it. And, mm. and it was a good 15 minutes of just sitting back and staring at my monitor saying, this should work. And here's what I always realize. I will leave sooner than later because yeah. I know the minute I get up and leave and like get my mind completely right. off the problem, it's going to hit me. Yeah. So I'll try and leave a little bit of time later on in the night so I can go, oh, I'm going to try this. Right. And then it, then it goes. That's good. And that's Walk exactly the dog, take a shower, yeah, I was the, anything. To, I was walking home from my office and it hit me. I didn't set the ports on the on the website. I didn't set the uh, ports right. And so boom, went home, fixed it, done. Yeah. So in, in the networking configuration, you didn't open uh, up the... Right, I was using yeah. a Node app and I didn't align 3000 with 80. I'm sure Node people out yeah. there understand exactly what I'm talking oh, about. I, I know exactly <laughs> what you mean. Yeah. So Rob, here at NDC, have you seen any good talks, had any good discussions? Yeah, I had a fascinating one with uh, another speaker, and I won't say who they were just because I didn't ask them if I could. It was another speaker here, and we were talking about the book that I just released, and uh, they were asking a question about, oh, you know, what, what was the funnest part of writing the book? And I said, learning about Claude Shannon. Hmm. And, uh, and Claude Shannon is a person that a lot of people don't know anything about. Do you guys Including know? me? No. No, oh, my goodness. So I'm going to start all of this by saying uh, you need to go read A Mind at Play. 
okay. which is about Claude Shannon. Claude Shannon has been described as the Einstein of the digital age. Interesting. Mm. He does not. Well, this is, he is. So to give you some context, back in the 30s, uh, he worked at MIT on mm-hmm. the big room sized computers. You know, yeah. where they use rods and pulleys and, and levers. They had to disassemble these things and reassemble them every time they had to calculate something new. Wow. So Shannon was looking at this one day and he was recalling, because um, they had they, they eventually updated these things and they, and they had these uh, little switches and motors to move stuff around so you didn't have to do all this heavy lifting. Okay. So he's looking at the switches and he's remembering a college course he took at University of Michigan, which he studied this fringe topic called Boolean algebra. Uh, from George Boole. And George Boole sat down one day and he decided he wanted to logically understand the mind of God. And so okay. he sat down. And, you know, like you do. Yeah. <laughs> George Boole is one of the original imposters, self-taught mathematician. So to him, it was perfectly fine. He was also a minister. Hmm. He sat down, laid out all these rules for the logical supposition of God, does God exist? Okay. And so along the way, he developed Boolean algebra Things mm. that we take for granted today, like ands, ors, xor, he developed all of that. Mm-hmm. Wow. So Claude Shannon saw this and, or learned about this, and he was looking at this differential uh, uh, machine uh, calculator or differential computer is what they called mm-hmm. it back then. Anyway, mechanical computer. And uh, he thought to himself, I can replace all these levers and pulleys and things with switches mm. using what I learned from George Boole. Mm. And so he sat down and he mapped out the first digital circuit. Wow. And so the room-sized computer was replaced with his work within five, ten years. Mm. So that, of course, was foundationally. He did that in his master's thesis. Wow. And it's been called the most important master's thesis ever written mm. because it laid the foundation for the digital circuit. Mm-hmm. Fast forward a few years, and people are starting to use binary. Uh, or he actually is a proponent of using binary for relaying information. Because at the time... To relay information back and forth, you had to use a telegraph, right? Or like right. a phone or something. So that's all analog and, and, and those kinds of signals. Mm. And he said, you know, we can send things using binary code. Mm. In fact, let's think about this for a bit. And then he wrote this massive paper about a way you could use binary to send information over the wire. Not only did he explain how to do it, he explained how to do error correction Mm. So that the signals transmitted could be almost error-free. And if you think about that in term, in the day, yeah. when using a telegraph at range, right, it's going to degrade and you're going to eventually not hear it. Sure. But here he's like, no, we'll just use ones and zeros. And by the way, you should be able to do these things to correct the errors. And he was completely correct. Mm. He then went in to explain how you can actually quantify the information that you're sending over the wire. And that was what engineers wanted to know. And this is not... This is not in terms of signal or physical properties, but how much literal information can we send over a network? Right. They're actually trying to solve networking back in the 30s and 40s. So Claude Shannon wrote this paper and it just exploded. And Mm. so literally gave birth to the information age. And and not many people know about this man. And the reason is he was extremely eccentric. And by the way, he and Turing were very good friends. Mm. He was very eccentric. He's a juggler. He's a tinkerer. He's one of these weird people. <laughs> it's just not a self-promoter. And so folks like von Neumann yeah. and Turing and other people really wanted their names out there. He mm. didn't care at all. He loved his job at Bell Labs. He loved to explore new things. But the stuff he did is absolutely insane. So that book, A Mind at Play, I listened, to, I read it over, I don't know, I think a two-day period. It just absolutely mm. glued to it. And I could not believe that I've never heard of this man. Well, me either. Yeah, already ordered it. It's on my Kindle. Yes. Links in the show notes, guys. Read it. Yep. yep. Yeah. But I, and I, 
I don't think we even said this up front, uh, Rob, because, but, you know, it's very easy to write an imposter's handbook that says, we're all imposters. It's okay. Just relax. Yeah. You're just trying to actually get people over being imposters by saying, here are some things you can know that will give you a little more confidence in the space of, I kind of get what's going on in computing. Right. I'm just fascinated that even the folks that are in, that do have degrees in computing science as to whether their education is as well-rounded as what the imposter's handbook talks about. I don't know. I mean, you know, everyone has their... Their specialty. I'm the annoying person in the room, as I said in the talk. Like, you bring up something like, oh, yes, Claude Shannon did talk about entropy. That whole idea of password entropy, that's Claude Shannon. Wow. He literally defined the term entropy for in in terms of information. In terms of information. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's crazy. Uh, It's awesome. See, I just did it right there. Very cool. A little more entropy. <laughs> the annoying podcast guest. You, at least you don't say al contraire all the time. <laughs> yes, yes, and stroke my beard. Yes. I. It's Of course, we're in England. Uh, I think Mr. Hanselman was actually up in Bellship Park mm-hmm. like yesterday. Yeah. And I can't, I always think about Turing when I'm here. Mm-hmm. I mean, the man died awfully young, you know, under horrible circumstances. Mm-hmm. I just wonder what didn't get invented Yeah. because... Mm-hmm of uh the the his the troubles that he had with society yeah you know the part troubles of society had with him really yes the problem the, the, the often when you read these biographies of these extraordinary people that are successful mm-hmm. there's somebody that shepherded them also yeah. that part of you know kept a distance to the rest of the world and and made sure that they they were allowed to be the geniuses they were yeah. without the extra complications folks like einstein and mm-hmm. and uh, and even isaac newton like there's there's always someone else mm-hmm. that is you know smart enough to run interference for them and i don't That's think right. alan turing ever had that option yeah, yeah. well and that uh, shows you how important mentors are right and the, the problem, of course, if you're isolated, is that you don't have inter- interactions with real people who can, you know, give you that sense of uh, perspective that you need. Mm-hmm. Losing perspective is what it's all about in mm-hmm. imposter syndrome, isn't it? I mean, sure. you think that everybody is smarter than you, that you don't have any value, everything that you know, everybody else knows. Yeah. And there's stuff that everybody else knows that you should know, and yeah. you better get busy learning it, young yeah. man or young woman. Well, one of the chronic things is you find yourself in a job for three to five years doing one thing, and yeah. then you need to start learning stuff and you know you you can spot the people in that position because they always drop terms like cool kids and oh the next js frame again they get they get justifiably skeptical and cranky Mm. the same and i do this too i do it all Mm -hmm. the time like oh gosh really we're gonna do like isomorphic you rendering components on the server wow i used to do that a long time ago (laughs) you know of course now like you learn about it like oh that is a little bit different what you're doing Mm. yeah um, but I do think uh, Brad Wilson was somebody who just uh, a Microsoft developer said this the other day. I have to learn something new every year, or else I'm gonna I'm gonna get salty and hate my job, mm. right? Because it goes so fast. Yeah, you know, it's so yeah. easy to fall behind. But uh, uh, it's also very normal if you're actually making something that you care about. Mm-hmm. You can't keep introducing new tools every day, right? Mm-hmm. Like sure. it makes sense to to tune your expertise in a set of tools for a problem space that you're working in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The real question is how long do you stay in the problem space? Yeah. Right. From a career perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's super normal to spend two or three years on a given problem space yeah. and then hopefully sort of share what you've learned as you've gone deeper into that expertise. Mm-hmm. And then you go find something else and, and yeah. get to be an amateur again. Yeah. yeah. I, I it's kind of, fun. I delight in being an amateur. I yep. do too. Well, you know, it's actually more, it's, it's kind of difficult to do that. For instance, I just learned all about cryptocurrency and blockchain. And I got yeah. really deep in how blockchain works and right. why 
it has its problems, but I just remember the promise of it all. I just thought that, because here's why. Somebody sent me some money, uh, Bitcoin, so cash. Yep. And, um, and I just looked at this and like, he literally just sent this to me. It didn't go through a government's hands, yeah, right. no bank. Like, this is powerful. The mm. idea, the idea. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, the, this amount of snark and skepticism is good. It's withstand, it has to withstand, you know, all of like, it has to withstand a lot of criticism. Mm. But then I think it's incumbent upon the other side of the engineer to come up with a solution for that. You know, yeah. I think I, I, would, I would expect an equal side to that. Like, we could figure this out because it's a good idea. Sure. Mm. You know. But well, it has potential. Potential. Yes. Good ideas is always a stretch for me. That's true. And it's funny. I, I ended up in exactly the same situation. Yeah. Uh, got received some Bitcoin. It's like, I guess yeah. I might as well figure this out. Yeah. Yeah. And then you go get a new iPhone you're like, or a new phone and you're like, uh, where did that money go? Yeah. It's gone. No, the, oh, <laughs> Which the, happened to me. It wasn't really until we talked to Mark Mercury that we realized all of the things that blockchain itself is good for. Yes. And it's not cryptocurrency yeah no i know it's amazing yeah it's now crazy. i look at it exactly the same way to look at at BitTorrent when it was in the context of napster yeah this is a technology right. for stealing music as opposed to this is a technology for sharing, sharing. files efficiently yeah. yeah and was actually super important but on you know and like uh blockchain i think BitTorrent has never really shaken off its shady roots right mm. and i don't know what it's going to take for us to have blockchain shake off those shady i don't roots. know yeah don't not know. that i automatically think that cryptocurrency is shady except yeah. that it's abundantly aware that there's yeah. a non-trivial amount of shady behavior going on in that and space. that's yeah. an important point on both ends because it's balanced on the other side by people in countries that don't have a stable currency and yes. no way of, and so you know mm. they're able to use this to actually pay each other without government interference and mm -hmm. that is yeah. a big deal on a positive side right mm -hmm. at the same and, time a ton yeah. of money laundering a ton of money smuggling mm -hmm. like and I'm not trying to, I'm not a proponent. I'm just a, I'm, I'm a yeah. casual bystander. When, but, I, I, but I appreciate this more subtle thought of there is value here. I don't know what we have to do to extract that value and yeah. to keep the good parts and let the bad parts okay. go. Yeah, yeah. And it, it comes back to um, just living with the idea that you don't know something mm -hmm. and, and that should be okay. Yeah. Right. Not, don't, don't form an opinion until you go to the next level. That's well, right. And also have it a positive intent. There must be something good yeah. here. We, you know, let's pursue that. Right. It is the engineer's discipline or the engineer's reaction of we're triaging all the time. Yeah. You know, you only have so much budget in your head for it, for understanding something. Yeah. And so you are looking for ways to, to triage off. I don't need to understand right. it because X. Right. And that is a fundamentally a criminal element is, yes. a, is one of those yeah. mechanisms. Like, nah, I don't actually, yeah. I have a, a, I have an ethical model that says I'm not going to go down there. Yeah. It's mm. like, that's also not, you know, I don't want to apply that crypto. I don't think it's fair. Yeah. Mm. But, My brother is a builder. He builds houses and, and it was the most annoying thing when he come, like if we move, he'd walk into the house, check the corners, check the tile, check, you know, he's like, well, that's going to fall down. That needs to be dealt with. Like, Could you just get out of here? Yeah. You know, just, like I like my house. Yeah. What about the paint color? You right. Know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look at the appliances. Right. Oh, well, you're going to have to replace those. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's what life looks like. <laughs> Nothing's ever permanent. Get <laughs> right, over right, it. Right, right. I guess engineers, that's what we do. We find the problems. Yeah. Well, I find if you pepper spray people more often, they talk <laughs> about right. other things. Yes, right? that's, right. Like, that's right. That quarter's not like, you're not talking about quarters anymore, are you? <laughs> that's right. Oh, my God. <laughs> Family pepper spray. That's it. Dinner at the Campbell's. Uh, yeah. Nice. Oh, no, I absolutely have the issue of, I know what corner isn't square in my house yeah. when it was built. And it and it's all I can do to not torment myself with it yeah. every time I walk by it. 
Yeah. You know? That's right. But that's its but own crazy. The funny thing, too, I was telling some people in my talk uh, when I was here that I've been working with Redis. And, you know, I decided not to use any abstraction, not going to use any library, just going to go straight into you Redis. want to get to know it. Yeah. So I, I enjoyed it. But then, like, when you get to know something at the metal level, I'm going to call it that, like the down deep, like you, you see everything that could possibly go wrong as well as everything that could possibly go right. And mm -hmm. your brain fills with so many details, right. you know, and it's, it's just crazy to see the translation of what we're talking about here. Like, mm. you know, even now I'm sitting here thinking about the routines I wrote, you know, to, to, to as quickly and efficiently as possible. Was it the most efficient thing I could do working with Redis? Yeah. Like, uh, sometimes just having an orm in the way is really comforting. Like, I don't know, it's handling it, right? Yeah, but yeah. there is a side of, you now know why you want that arm. Yeah, that's right. Right, like you're yeah. you're legit in that space, in yeah. that sense. For, and I hope in your own mind, right? I mean, you really think, again, what is the Imposter's Handbook about, right? Yeah. It's like, here's, here's things you know that make you more credible yeah. to yourself. Right. As a computing science professional. Yeah. Right. Right. You now can use an RM against Redis knowing yeah. I have a pretty good idea what this thing's going to do against yeah. this. Well, maybe. So I'm going to pose I'm going to pose a question to you guys. Okay. Because I posed it to the audience and I said, you cannot unsee this. Does anybody <laughs> want to see this? And they're like, yes. And I said, okay, we're doing a primary key lookup on the database. Mm -hmm. So in terms of big O and, and time complaint, whatever. Just matter, how many operations does the database have to go through to get that primary key right. data? So what do you guys think? If I had to oh, throw man. it at you. Well, I'll just tell you. I know it's annoying. If you, if, so if you, first, if back up a bit. If you query an item on a database without using a primary key or an index, mm. it has to do what's called a full table scan. Right. Yep. So it loops over every item. So yes. in big O land, that's order in. Mm -hmm. But if it has an index on it, it actually does a binary search algorithm in the background. Presuming that it's a B minus, minus yes. tree. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And most index use the same thing. Yeah. Uh, but, these uh, days. These days, right. So that's login. And so whoop de doo what does that mean? Well, you can actually plug it into a calculator. Mm -hmm. If I have 1,000 rows in my table, I can plug in log base 2 of 1,000, which is 10. Yeah. And so boom, you know that there's 10 operations. You're down from 1,000 to 10. And, and I'm like, are you sure you want to keep going? Because you can't unsee what I'm about to tell you. All right. And so you look at the primary key lookup, and that uses an index. And so that's login, which means that the best you can do 90% of the time when you're using a relational database is a log n query. Mm -hmm. You can't do an order one. And there might be some, I shouldn't say that definitely. There might be some circumstances which you can. But with Redis, Redis is all about order one. And so then that, like, all of a sudden explodes these options in your head. If you have a high-intensity site, Oh, wow. You know, what does this mean in terms of log-based indexes and so on? Look, use the thousand row example, yeah. which is bullshit. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I know. It is. Do a hundred million row. Yeah. Because log in against ON yeah. at a hundred million rows oh, I know. It's is huge. a very different number. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's huge. But if you're considering that in a relational system, it's a very big number. Sure. But if I told you you could put a hundred million rows in Redis and you could still do order one, which is always going to be one. I mean, that's, that's, it's just, I can't put a hundred million rows in Redis. You, yeah, you can't. Well, it depends you, what you put in there, but you're right. You're right. Right. You're I right. mean, this is the thing, dude, if Redis was the perfect oh, data no, store, it's perfect. we'd be using it everywhere. Oh yeah. Please right? don't There's, think I'm, please don't think I'm sitting here trying to, I'm just saying like, but I, and you and go I'm to just, that level. I'm just calling out that you built a scenario yes. that paints Redis in a particular light. I, I mean, that wasn't my intent. My intent was to just highlight that when you go under the covers, cause you said, isn't it great that an arm can handle something, which yeah. is true. At the same time, you don't know what's going on under there. And mm -hmm. if you need to squeeze that performance, there are options. Right. And so I should put it that way, not to use Redis, true. but, but again, there are other things. The engineer's triage says, yes. once I get under a second, stop slicing the true. penny. 
yeah. right? Like, yeah. is this a problem I need to explore? Yeah. And I think it, for us as responsible professionals, it's yeah. like, there is a way to optimize this. You could itch. make this there's better. there's an itch. Yeah. You, you <laughs> there's got, an itch. You got it from three quarters a second <laughs> no. to 0.6 seconds. You're awesome, no, dude. dude like, but you're sitting there, you're writing the code, and you're like, I could have 100 million. I know. There's an itch. Yeah, there. yeah. There's an itch. Right. I've got this down <laughs> to an O of one solution. All I need yeah. is three quarters of a million dollars worth of RAM. Can you do that for me? How about that? Is that good? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or you could just use Cosmos TV. Yeah. yeah. There we go. Good job. Thank you very much. There's always a guy sitting in the corner saying, if we written this in Ruby on Rails, we would have been fine, right? Like, I hate yeah, that guy. No, I throw I stuff at that guy. Wait, weren't you that guy? I am that guy now. Yeah. <laughs> You're being that guy right yeah, now. No, exactly. And I'm on you for exactly that reason. Yeah, oh, man. Uh, you know, it, 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 this was what was an interesting truth. And I just, you know, I'm old. Yeah. I went to a CJ date lecture back mm-hmm. in the day, right? I argued the merits of B minus tree sorting. And so, you know, yeah, we sure. went through all that. And at the time, a hundred million rows was an abs- absurdity. A lot You're data, never right? going to do that. Like this is unnecessarily complicated because mm-hmm. it was hard. Yeah. Like this was hard doctrine. That's right. But, you know, here we are. And a hundred yeah. million isn't even a lot. It's nothing. Right? Yeah. Like that's sort of the interesting truth about that is that, we build against the tools we had at the time with the technological requirements we had at the time. Yeah. And our success in building that changed them mm-hmm. and made them incorrect. Mm. Yeah. You showed me we could handle a million rows trivially, so I brought you 50 million. That's right. Yeah, buggers. That's right. right. <laughs> yeah. Or you showed me you could get the query done in a second, mm-hmm. and now I needed it a tenth of a second. Yeah, that's mm. right. Yeah. But otherwise, we'd be done. You'd actually have delivered the code and be finished. And who wants to do that? Yeah, it's no fun. Yeah. Yep. So you just published the the new version of yep. Imposter's Handbook. What are you working on now? Uh, the videos. I'm doing videos with it. So that's just, really interesting. Yeah. To turn that into a video series well, as well. I. It's not. It's just they're complimentary. That's all. It's okay. supposed to be for people who prefer visual. How do you like to learn? Yeah. Right. So it's just like <laughs> okay. So we we just did. Um, Oh, bit shifting, you know, and like you can, you can draw. I have lots of diagrams I draw by hand. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people just don't get it. But if you do a visual thing to, yeah. aid, oh, okay. Yeah. Little two minute videos, you know, it's probably good about 15. Right. So I'm working on that. Uh, otherwise, so you yeah, sold Tech Pub and you're still doing Tech Pub. Um, well, I'm actually at Microsoft. This is, uh, this is what I'm doing now. It's kind of a side gig that I just mm. keep doing. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I work at Microsoft. So I'm, I have a couple of things I'm working on there. Um, and now that's what I'm up to. Nothing. I have no plans for anything else in the future. What did you roll at Microsoft? You used to be you're laughing the- at me. <laughs> I know you're full of. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't have any plans. No, no plans. if I did, they, they're fine. They're fine with me doing these. Yes, things. but you have Redis Cache optimizing to do, my friend. Get busy. <laughs> yes. All right. No, oh, God. See now, I'm gonna get. We're gonna get flamed out. <laughs> get that Redis hack off of there. Jeez, that's too funny. Yeah. No. You're back at Microsoft. I am back. You were Microsoft. one of the Ninja Army back in the day. I was. Yeah. 2007. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What yeah. brought you back? Uh, I, I kept in touch with the team. Uh, you know, they're friends of mine. Mm-hmm. And so I'd go mm-hmm. out there. We, I lived in Seattle for three years. And I'd ride my bike out there in the evenings and uh, go to Postdoc, a little brewery out there, and, and just kind of catch up, see what they're doing. Kept in touch with Damien Edwards and Brad and Wilson and, and, and people. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Damien would just tell me a few things that they're up to. And then one day he's like, you know, you should talk to Tim Hewer, uh, who works in CDA, mm. yeah. the advocate group. He owns Channel Line. And I was like, I'm not an evangelist. Mm-hmm. I, I really, you know, not like, it's CDA. not about evangelism. I'm like, it's the advocate group. I'm like, 
Well, they're trying to do something different. So I was like, all right, well, I'm never going to turn down a meeting with somebody. Plus, I know Tim. I liked him. So yeah. I sat with him one day and he, you know, summarizing what he said, but he's, you know, I could see you really helping us break Azure. And I was like, come again. <laughs> you know, he's like, well, we need people to build stuff and help break Azure so we can tell the product group what's going on. I mean, yeah. like, like, you mean like a test pilot? You know, and I'm yeah. like, do I have to write .NET? Not that I don't, I don't, it's not that I mind writing anything in .NET because it's just I haven't done it in years. Right, yeah. I'm not opposed to it. But he's like, no, 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 no. We want you to use anything you're comfortable with, like Node, Ruby, Python, I prefer Elixir. you to use anything that our customers might yeah. use that might break Azure. And he said, we're really focusing on Postgres right now. And that's pretty much all I had to hear. I'm like, yeah. I want this job. So how, you basically have to figure out how to do an infinite loop in every platform. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, the, the, the halting problem. The Postgres, halt. <laughs> the Postgres implementation in Azure is an interesting one. It is. And we, we just acquired Citus. Uh, oh. Data, which is a, a distributed implementation of Postgres, and hmm. they are very serious about it. And wh when I went through the interview uh, thing, I talked to a lot of the data team, and they were like really wanting to know what I knew about the Postgres world. And sure. I was like, are we really, you seriously, are we doing this? And they said, yes. So hmm. it sounds to me like there's an implicit mission of we want the best Postgres instance anywhere yeah well mm. one of the things and i think i can say this if i can i'm going to get in trouble but their guidance is when they when people come to uh azure mm -hmm. uh, from an oracle uh backend they mm. push them into postgres sure as opposed yeah. to sql server which which is basically the origins of postgres in the first place right. it's a group of a disgruntled oracle people going yeah. screw those guys and, and yeah. making something better but it's right. not the point is it's not a strategic play for them they're like they're not trying to get them on sql server they're trying I, to like do the best well, why would they it, azure consumption is azure consumption yeah. Right. And yeah. you got a Postgres on Azure, SQL on Azure. Like yeah. we want everything on Azure. Yeah. yeah. But the why put that barrier in place? I mean, yeah. this was the. I think this is. You talk. You mentioned this maybe in a different show. I'm sorry. We've done a lot today. Mm. Thank goodness for Scott Guthrie. Yeah. So one thing Scott Guthrie figured out is like, I really don't care what your tech is. Yeah. Run it on my platform. Yeah. yeah. And I'm going to make sure my platform runs whatever tech you want. That's yeah. right. And so you know what I just got excited about is the way you were talking. It's like there's clearly somebody oh, leading yeah. the Postgres group at Azure that the only metric that matters to them is this is the best version of Postgres you've ever used in your life. Yeah. No matter yeah. what you want to do, no matter where you're coming from, mm. this is the best version of Postgres. Yeah. And that's what more do you want yeah. yep. that a group of people that that's all they care about for that piece of that platform. So whatever you were doing with Postgres, when you got there, they could take it. They yeah. know they can handle it. Well, and that's where they want to go for sure. And they're not just doing this as a, a token. Like, you know, like and what you was the want... used to thing it makes like, and it runs on a Mac. Like, yeah. right, and yeah. we have Postgres. Like, no, they want to like, as you're saying. The checkbox feature yeah, exactly. versus the right. group of fans yes. that do this. Like, we love the, this is our piece and we're great at it. Yes. And you're going to have a great time with us. Yes. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. Well, sounds fun. Uh, I wish we could be there with you, but we'll <laughs> in be there. spirit, you are. I have your we'll pictures on my desk. Oh, uh, so yeah. sweet! And a lie. I do. Yeah, it's a lie. it is a lie. But if you know, <laughs> but it's really? but it's it's in my head right now, so it's kind of okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll be there in your head. Yeah. All and right. when you get back to work. Yeah. Rob, thanks. It's always fun geeking out with you, man. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> we only yelled at each other once this time, which is good. Yeah. Last time it was about the book, and you're still wrong about that. Yeah. You know, you know what the thing, you know the great thing about you, Rob. You wear being wrong better than anybody I know. Oh, this is too good. <laughs> yeah, you keep thinking. <laughs> All right. I never knew you were so pro genocide, but now that I know, I'm much uh, really comfortable. Man, wow. Wonder what you are talking about. <laughs> All right, folks. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.
Dotnet Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and of course in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a...